when you're ready to be really fucking wrong and just like go down in flames, fail, but then use that wreckage and climb up and take pieces as you go and build a plane that flies. Hey y'all, and welcome to another episode of the Life Lab Podcast. I'm your co-host, Will Dorns, and you'll be joined by my other co-host, Everett Adams. We'll be joined by our guest today as well, Maria Papaleo, who's a UX manager at Moz, and Peter Neuenhausen, who's a software development manager at Amazon. Today, we're going to talk about failing and failing big, tracking your accomplishments, giving, and then stay tuned for the very end when we talk about a story about when Peter visits Seth Godin's office. There's a lot of laughs, there's a lot of cheersing, and there's a lot of randomness. Hope you enjoy it as much as we did. You mentioned something that was interesting. What? You said um, during your upbringing, you were around a bunch of people that were more practical. Yes. Are you talking about your parents or who was that? Just yes. people in general? Yeah, well, my parents and um, I really had a close bond with my history and art teachers in school. Uh, so my mom is like literally the most practical person in the entire world. Like she is... No, she takes no shit and she takes no prisoners ever. Um, my mom did most of our upbringing. So when I was uh, in 2000, I was like 12 going on 13. My father passed unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. So my brother, he had a younger brother. He was 10. So my mom just kind of was forced into the single parenthood unexpectedly and unwillingly. And uh, she was like, well, fuck, I got to make the best with what I got and I got to at least pretend on the outside that I've got it all together. And she did like Herculean things of parenthood as a single person while having a career. So she is a dialysis nurse and she was nurse leader, which is like being a manager of other nurses. And she was on her way to becoming, um, I think it's called a nurse practitioner, which is like the manager of nurse managers and like kind of running the, the practice so uh, she was a nephrology nurse, which is like dialysis, so kidney failure stuff. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> really specialized stuff. So it was really cool um, looking back on it and kind of understanding that as an adult. But she had to balance like being the sole breadwinner and being a single parent without any say and then having to deal with, you know, me, which we will learn is can be a challenge. <laughs> Um, and my brother and then the relationship my brother and I had which was um, explosive and then the relation the explosive relationship my brother and I had as it related to the family unit so she had all of this like crazy shit going on and she did it with a lot of of thought she did it with like but she never really made it look like it was difficult she just was like what are you doing? Why are you doing it? How is it going to help you? What is the outcome? How do you move forward? And I'm not saying like she asks those questions all the time, like in those particular words, but those are usually like her um, contemplative processes as she went through stuff. So like, okay, I'm 13. I'm in eighth grade. Um, yes, I'm young, but you know, I was eight, 13 in eighth grade. And so I'm going through all of this stuff. You know, my brother and I are on the precipice of puberty and I bet in her head she was just like, son of a bitch that I have to go through a boy puberty and a girl puberty within like 18 months of each other and I had to do it by myself oh god (laughs) so thankfully she met my stepdad at a certain point 
um, in that process. But still, she had to deal with like doing the whole parenting thing. She didn't have to do it alone. But if anybody's from a blended family, there's like this weird power play dichotomy of fuck you, you're not my real dad, you can't tell me what to do, and fuck you, I'm older than you, I will tell you what to do. Yeah. So um, she, and, but give her more context. So she grew up on a farm in northern Vermont in the 60s and 70s. And she grew up, you know, very salt of the earth kind of people. And like every action had a reaction and everything had a consequence and every path had an end and every end had a beginning. Like, you know, there was life and death and birth and destruction and like, mm-hmm. you know, the seasons ebbed and flowed and like everything was this and that and then. And she just kind of came into like, you know, air quotes, city life with that. And she, you know, she's the first and only of her siblings that have um, a college degree. You know, she mm-hmm. she pieced out A-Town down when she was 17. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, you know, she graduated high school. She walked across the stage and into the belly of the universe at that point. Where she was like, all right, see you, bye. Town, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she moved out. She found her own way. She, you know, biked across Colorado when she was 18 and made the wonderful discretion of deciding to tell me she got arrested one time, which I've held over her head for forever. Um, Not for anything cool, but like not paying for a campsite. That's cool. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Um, But yeah, so she just had like a whole bunch of interesting experiences. But like then she just like crafted and forged a whole space for herself. She put herself through business school and then she met my dad and then she put herself through nursing school and then she made this thing and then like she through no decision of her own was making her way as a single parent for a couple years and then she had to make her way through her master's degree and she had to make her way through a career transition because when my dad died she just took bereavement for a year and said I'm starting over. Why do you think she because it would have been really easy for her to do make a lot of other choices that were probably a lot easier. It sounded like she made a lot of hard choices yeah. that provided a lot of benefits, not only for herself, but also for you guys as a family. Yeah. And set a lot of really good examples of that. What did you take from that and apply to your own life? Because uh, it seems like yeah. that's only just shown in everything that I know about you. Yeah. So when I was experiencing all of that, I had... A unfortunate, indignant teenage mentality. And I was like, but all of my friends got a car for their birthday, but yeah. all of my friends got their college paid for them. I'm like embarrassed of my, my teenage self. You shouldn't uh, yeah. be. No, no, no. There's a difference. But you get it, though. That's the thing. Like, you have, you've grokked that that's rank and power. And yeah. that's okay. Yeah. And that's fine. But, like, I, I grew up in, like, upper middle class space and all of my friends just got that i was like why am i different what's going on like i don't understand i didn't understand it i didn't get it until i started having emotional relationships with people outside of my family like myself and i'm like oh everything makes so much more sense Mm -hmm. but i didn't get it i couldn't put myself in her shoes um we'll put a pin in that i'll talk about like when my mom became a real person and i actually understood her i know it's crazy <laughs> Tune in next time. <laughs> next episode two. two. To be continued. <laughs> so then, how did you? So those years, how mm. did you then? It's interesting that she was so logical, mm. and that you chose. I mean, for the outsider perspective, sure, sure. that you chose to go into something such as art school. Oh, it seems very it. not. Logic. She prayed for me. She prayed, she prayed to the Jesus or the Jesuses or yeah. what is the plural? Jesus, Jesus. She prayed to the Jesus. <laughs> All the Jesus. 
Uh, no, she was not happy. So my mom, like I said, she got a business degree and then she got a nursing degree. And I kind of always erred toward excessively creative. So there's like two splits of brain. There's like math and science, um, English, and history, art, creative, right? And so I always really erred towards the history, creative side. Um, I barely made it through high school. However, I barely made it through high school in the IB program. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> so for those of you playing at home, International Baccalaureate is a um, equivalent of achieving your first year of university at any university across the world by the time you graduate 12th grade. So it's a two and a half year interdisciplinary program that encompasses theory of knowledge, art, science, second language, history, um, and wow. maths. That's incredible. Do you know, you know, I'd be. I know of it, but I did not ever. Oh yeah. yeah. So you have in each class. So each class, each section is not like one class, one class. You don't take it in grade 11 and take it in grade 12. You take the English higher level program and it's at a two year class. Mm -hmm. You start, you, you start it in 11th grade and you write your summary or your thesis or your kind of exit paper at the end of 12th grade. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you have your state-level diploma, then you have your AP program, right? So everyone's super familiar with that. So, like, you have to do your state-level program regardless. And with IB, you fulfill that. Most of the time, everybody also does their AP qualifications nested in the IB program because you just naturally do it. But IB wraps around that. And then you take all of those credits. And then almost any college, like 90% of colleges worldwide will take them as entrance credits yeah. for like mm -hmm. getting rid of all your first year bullshit. Oh, that's amazing. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, but I super barely scraped through that because I just became disinterested in anything I didn't want to do. Yeah. So like English, I procrastinated to like the last minute and like the teacher is calling my mom and being like, she needs to hand in the paper like literally today. Or she will not get a grade. And I just like, they like sat me, oh my God, I remember they like sat me down in the computer lab and somebody sat outside the door until I fucking finished that paper. And I still scored a five out of seven. And I was like, oh, <laughs> but then like I got the first perfect score on the art, on the art portfolio. Mm -hmm. Like in the history of my program, maybe I got a seven out of seven because it was something I was really passionate and really driven about. It? It was just like a collection of things that I had done from grade 11 to grade 12. And I had satisfied all the criteria. Like yeah. I found the rubric and I was like, check, 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 get okay, done. <laughs> but it was one of those things. So I was like, I just focused on it. And I was like, I'm going to do this. I can do this. I actually don't mind doing it. And it kind of goes back to the whole thing about I found a career based on access of availability rather than like influx of passion. It's weird because I would almost say that it kind of is, it might not be your biggest passion, but it just seemed like it is a passion of sorts in that you didn't dismiss it immediately off the bat. People are my passion. Relationships are my passion. Like, I will forego some things sometimes in the pursuit of, like, social betterment. Not necessarily my social betterment, but, like, yeah. social betterment of, like, those and people around me. Like, I, I cherish... I value, I love, I adore relationships. I love proliferating education and knowledge and experiences. Yep. And they kind of all roll up to the same thing. That's something I'm passionate about. How did you, and I want to keep going on this path, but yeah. how did you come to realize that? And when did you realize that? Um, 
Because I think a lot of people, a lot of people know what they kind of like and what they dislike. And that's more of a vague, vague thing. Like, this is what I'm good at, but you are phenomenal at that. How did you come to realize this is what I'm, this is what I really enjoy, this is what I'm passionate about? So, (laughs) September 16th, 1992, (laughs) Mrs. Wells, kindergarten class. Maria's a good student. Maria needs to curb her social tendencies. <laughs> May 14th, 1993. Mrs. Wells, kindergarten class. I appreciate Maria's ambition, but her social nature gets in the way of other students' learning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Should I keep going or do you get the year point? Year after year after year. <laughs> year after year after yeah. year. Like all of my report card comments are like, I appreciate her ambition, but her social tendencies get in the way. Maria's ambition is admirable, but she needs to respect other students' space. Like, I, sociability and socialness has something that's kind of just been, like, the core of my person. So, do you think because you like to see the betterment of other people and you love people so much that that's just why you kind of graduated to UI, UX? Because everybody who Mm -hmm. uses that, you are essentially building that relationship. Maybe not face-to-face, but through technology totally so i completely agree with you because when i was doing contract work um when i was doing contract work a lot of how i would position myself to other people is i empathetically can understand a lot of the needs and issues that consumers are facing now some of you who are listening is like shut up user research is a thing and i was like no (laughs) (laughs) And then I'll just yell back, this was 2011, shut up. <laughs> People didn't really understand, like, the need yeah. for, like, usability and research and app and, like, how you can apply customer feedback to make a better product. Everyone's just, like, dictatorially creating technology at this point, which was fine because it's in its infancy, right? So you had the opportunity to do that. So I would always talk emphatically about how users are informed some like like emotional like cores of people that need to go through things and I really loved it. Um I loved getting in inside people's heads and like figuring out like why kind of psychologically they were doing things. Mm-hmm. And it was and I wouldn't say it was like a game, but it was like a challenge. Like how can I create inferences to un- have people understand which paths we were going through and that evolved over time, over time, over time. So I went from like graphic design to web design to UI design to UX design to UX strategy to now being like a UX practice manager and now um, information architecture kind of thing. And so it's like this whole idea path and like really connecting with people and like being uh, empathic also along the way. How did you, how do you develop that? in UI UX I I know like design thinking is like a big thing but how do you develop that and how do you learn that and how do you become good at that so the best way to become a master practitioner of UX now UI is different and we'll get back to that in a little bit so do you want to explain the differences for people yeah, so UX is the user experience it's kind of like all of the data and paths and ideals and biases and experiences and uh, cognitive loads that inform how somebody might go through a path in addition to accessing research to 
synthesizing how they actually go through a path and figuring out kind of like the net benefit from there. UI is the user interface design. So the user interface design is literally the shit that you see. So it's like the more refined version of what we used to call web design. Uh, because UI design is now multidisciplinary. It's phone, it's tablet, it's computer, it's smartwatch, it's touchscreen tablet kiosk, it's so many different things. It's the the seven inch you know micro tablet that's in your car. It's the voice interface that you have when you say, "Hey Alexa, stop listening." <laughs> you know the UI design comes in so many different ways so UI is like the what you actually interact with and the UX is the intention that you act, interact with right yeah okay. so they're are two divergent things but they kind of all originate from one spot and you kind of have to grow through you know being a visual or a web designer or a graphic designer you have to like find your way it's like choose your own adventure right yeah. You know, like, all right, brave adventurer, you're level two. You're set out in the world. You have plus two to intrigue, plus two. Yeah, what was that? Uh, what was that Netflix uh, show that just came out? There's a Netflix show that came out, and you could choose your own. You made a decision. Oh, yeah. they were actually like, sued by the seconds. Choose Your Own Adventure book people because they have a yeah. copyright on that um, IP. Bandersnatch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bandersnatch. Media. They like. They Vander- copyrighted Vander- that IP. Yeah, the the concept of choose your own adventure, as far as a user driven narrative for a fictional to um, semi fictional storyline. Interesting. So I you, know you've read the patent, or is that just your understanding of, of the IP? So my part of my routine is listening to NPR for forty five minutes every morning, and when all things considers come on, I better fucking leave. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, it's really interesting. But yes, I've heard about that. Never seen it because I consume media in a really weird way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We were, we were. I'm so fascinated. Yeah. You didn't listen. You never listened yeah, to a single podcast. But like, yeah. How do how do you consume? Media? Um. So I have. So media and video games for me are kind of. I have two modes. I will play or watch or consume everything, in one go contiguously. Like or I don't bin, care about it at all. Like binge watching? No. Okay. No. Like, um, example, we're watching Blacklist right now. James Spader, you know, the 2011 show. Yeah. <laughs> we're on season two-ish. Um, we went from early October from watching one episode. The next time we watched the next, ep- the, the, the next episode in the series was like late March. So like, but we didn't watch anything else at all. Like we just watched, we picked one show. And we get all the way through it. Then we pick another show. And we go all the way through. And I don't watch anything else. I just, that's what we do. Yeah. And when I used to play video games, I picked one video game and I was, or not we, but I would pick one video game and I would play it to total completion. But I wouldn't play it at once and I wouldn't binge it because I didn't have space for it. I would just play it and I would do everything and it's just like, I had to just do it. You wouldn't. Go and buy a new game Mm-mm. if you were halfway through that game. Nope. Yeah. Nope. Are you Why do you with books? Nope. I'm really ADD with books. My, I have a hard time settling my brain to like focus on a book. Why do you think the difference is? That's really interesting. The visual. Yeah, I'm super visually oriented. That would make sense as it ties back to like <clears throat> um, user experience. Yes, I'm so visually oriented. Like you know, we were talking about the house. Like I'm very aesthetically inclined, right? Like yeah. so. 
I also have this kind of funny thing that I say, like I get super stressed out when things are like too cluttered because I have this mantra and it sounds perverse at first birth, but clean whole, clean soul. Clean whole? Whole, like my whole. W-H-O-L-E. H-O-L-E. Yeah. No, clean whole, H-O-L-E. <laughs> get that W out of here. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> so clean whole, clean soul. So like <laughs> when my visual space is really cluttered and like, in disorganized yeah. state I have a hard time like finding like inner peace like I'm super focused I'm like oh I have to put that away I have to put that but it's not like OCD right it's or any type of like tick it's just yeah. I need calm because there's like so much going on in my head all the time that I just need no visual noise yeah. some, <laughs> some sense of order right yeah totally yeah so like I have this book I have American Gods by Neil Gaiman I, the last time I read it was December 2018. So recently. Oh, 2017. I apologize. (laughs) It's been over a year. (laughs) It's been over a year since I picked it up, but I still love that book. But I'll read it a few times. You'll you'll just start like reading where you left off. But I'll still remember it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fine. But I just have no passion to like consume, 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 consume. Yeah. I think that's great. Like we were, we've been talking about that with books. Some other people that we follow talked mm-hmm. about different ways to consume books. Yeah. Like you can be inspired by reading a chapter of a book and not touch it for a year. Yeah. I'm actually more inspired about reading like um, quick media. So I subscribe to a medium feed and I have it curated of all the mm-hmm. stuff that I'm focused on. And I spend like 30-ish minutes every day like learning about user research, user interface, uh, career advancement, um, design thinking, uh, creative team leadership. And I just spent 30 minutes and I consume all of that stuff and I can read it really, I can read something in four hours or less, which is effectively a flight across the United States. I'll do that. But my threats are my threshold. Like I read um, Sprint, which was a fantastic book about workflows yeah. and how to like get rapid um, and iterative user That's feedback. About Google, right? Eh, it's actually more about blue bottle coffee. Lean UX is the one mm, you're thinking of. Okay. Yeah. So I read Sprint uh, by Something like Bogenstein or something like that. I've heard of it before, but yeah. Fabulous book. It's blue with yellow lettering on it. Super visual. Mm. (laughs) Um, But I read that on a flight across the United States and it like changed how I work. It changed how my team shows up into the company. It changed how the company interacts with my team. Other product managers and other leaders at the company have like taken that like framework and they've like ran with it. Like this is what they're doing. So like that's my threshold. I need like quick digestible. So what were some of the the pieces of the, the biggest pieces of value that you took from that book that you've been able to apply yourself and your teams that you work with? Uh, the biggest thing was is don't be afraid to be wrong and don't be afraid or don't don't be afraid to be wrong and don't be worried about the depth of how wrong you are. That's the second piece is really fascinating on that. Yeah. Yeah, so um, where did I read this? God, I can't remember. I did some kind of like workshop recently <clears throat> and somebody quoted an author that they had read and it's like, being wrong is the first step to ownership. Being really wrong is the first step to mastery. And I was like, oh, interesting. Because you have to, when, when somebody's willing to fail, they're willing to say, I can take this situation and I can learn from it and I can launch myself into the future. 
But like when you're kind of just giving up anything that you're like beholden to is like, I need to prove how good I am at this. You don't need to prove how good you are at like executing the skill. You need to prove how good you are at understanding the situation. So when you're ready to be really fucking wrong and just like go down in flames, fail, but then use that wreckage and climb up and take pieces as you go and build a plane that flies, right? That was really beautiful. Thanks. (laughs) Um, I'm really good at failing. I've been fired a lot. Yeah, but you also climb the wreckage really well, too. That's true, and I I flew a plane out of it, and I was like, bye! (laughs) Yeah. It makes sense, though. It's part of the journey towards any success or any sort of masterpiece, right? That's so true. Some stumbling blocks. Yeah. And that's the one thing. People get so, and I've, I've learned this at work, like people get so obsessed on the projects that they're on. They're like, this has to win. I have to make this win because I need to prove how capable I am. But people forget the other side of that coin. It's like, you prove how capable you are about recognizing opportunities to hit the eject button and say, hey, this project is failing and these are the reasons it's failing. Almost. Right. Uh, one of my wonderful friends who actually has a podcast that I've also never listened to, his wow. name is Peter Shepard. Um, the podcast is called The Long and the Short of It because he's 6'6 and his podcast um, partner is 5'1. So it's kind of an interesting play on words. So The Long and the Short of It by Peter Shepard. And I apologize, Pete. I don't remember your friend's name. <laughs> um, but they just did a podcast about um, resumes. And the title of that is Resumes are a List of Sunk Costs. Mm. I know. When I read that, like I didn't even want to listen to the podcast. I was like, preach on, Pete. You good. <laughs> That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you've always been really good about career advancement, um, and you have, and you're not afraid to fail. No. How have you? How do you keep a positive mindset when failure happens? That, that's your questions. I feel like you're trying to remember. No, I'm not. Oh, these are these are just off the. Oh, off so the dome. being afraid to fail is. Is not I, it's not failure. It's being it's not afraid to fail. No, I, I don't like that that quantification. Um, I'm not afraid to fail. I'm willing to learn, and I say this to my manager all the time. When like I had this really interesting transition of leadership at work over the summer, and uh, I said to my manager over probably our third glass of wine, mm. <laughs> I was like, Neil, I can promise you two things. But I only can promise you two things that I know I can make good on. I promise you that I will fuck up royally. But I also can promise you. <laughs> so great. And actually, I told him and the follow-up was, and you will have to clean up one of my messes. Yeah. <laughs> but then he looked at me. He's like, what? And I was like, but I also can promise you with extreme resolve that I will never fail the same way twice. And that's the thing. It's like. You can look at it as failure. You can frame it as failure, but you can be like, I'm just going to push so hard that I'm going to push to the point where I actually don't know what I'm doing at a certain point, but I'm going to believe that I'm just going to keep going. Yeah. And you just, when you realize that it's done, you go, okay, we're moving on. We're just going to step back from this for a minute. What's an example of when you've been pushing so hard and you're like, I don't really know what I'm doing. And it either failed or it turned out well. I think that's really interesting. <sighs> so I guess I can talk about like the most recent thing as of four hours ago. 
Um, Ooh, very I relevant. Know. I know, very right? Relevant. Is this work-related? It is work-related. probably a good time to mention where you work. Mm-hmm. Oh, so I work at a software company called Moz, uh, spelled M-O-Z. It is a search engine optimization software, so we kind of take all of the good shit that comes in and out of Google. Um, we have our own proprietary algorithms, and we create these really nice dashboards that help people track and understand what their websites, their keywords, their links, their domains, their competitors are doing in the SEO space. A um, little different than how GA and all of that stuff works. Um, Moz is an interesting space in, in the SEO community. It's been like a forerunner of that. And, you know, now it's grown into a big industry. It's no longer like the snake oil that people sprinkle on their sites yeah. and say, we're going to rank for number one for Play-Doh on Google. Totally off topic, but how big of how big is speech and like natural language processing? Um, so there's this there's this concept of what's called lexical similarity in SEO. So like when I say basketball, lexical similarity will be like hoops, b ball, like all of that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So they kind of collect this assumed uh, colloquial vernacular about like what's going on in the space, and so it'll start to grok the keywords and through various terms of machine learning be like hey we think you might also want to be involved with understanding these keywords does that answer your question yeah okay buckets you think buckets is in there he's got to be that's a phrase he likes to use he thinks one of his shots is going in He'll shoot it be like buckets. Oh, I just throw stuff at an orifice and go say, Go away! Ready? Ready? Watch. Yeah. Any Ooh. chance you get it. Go yes. Oh, buckets. <laughs> buckets. The pizza <laughs> Cheers napkin, to that. folks. Oh, yeah. oh wait, what? Oh, oh, hey, it's bad oh, luck to choose yeah, an empty glass. Bad. I can't, I cannot. Cheers to buckets. Buckets. Buckets of fun, Mr. Buckets. Anyways, um, so at work, um, I've been pushing super hard. So I've been at Moz for 10 months. I was going to say, yeah, coming up on a year now. Yep, coming up on a year. Been at Moz for 10 months, and through a whole bunch of like weird happen chances, um, I ended up having layers of leadership between me and my executive team just continuously get removed. So I report directly to the VP of product now, who reports directly to the CEO. So my skip. My grand boss yeah, is yeah, the yeah. CEO, which is freaking bananas. Also, um, like it that way. It's challenging, but it's really interesting. Um, there's a lot of dynamics that I'm learning really fast and really furiously. Um, it's different. It's it's definitely a whole other structure that I never learned, never had to learn how to navigate before. Um, but it's cool. So I started there ten months ago. I came in thinking I was going to work for who was my mentor at the time. I guess he still is my mentor. He just moved and I haven't talked to him all that much. But I thought I was going to work for him and like learn all of this like really cool stuff. But he ended up leaving. In quick succession, the person I was reporting to who was the layer of leadership between me and the CEO, he ended up leaving as well. So now it's like me. I'm a line manager. So I just have a team of eight. I don't, I'm not a manager of managers. I'm just a manager of ICs or mm-hmm. independent contributors. So me, and then I report straight into the VP of product. And I'm like, ooh, this is an interesting relationship. But it's great. He's a wonderful dude. And then he reports to the CEO. So knowing that these two layers of leadership between me and him have been removed, I was like, oh, goddamn, I've got to like cover 
all of that stuff that relates to design, UI, UX, research, usability, testing, wow. feedback, implementation, all that kind of stuff. It's like, ooh, that's a big, that's, that's a, a lot. That's a, that's a big lift. And so I've been pushing super hard to get my promotion to director because I want the ability and the, the title that matches what I perceive that I'm doing. So I've been pushing really, really, really hard to that. And I actually don't remember the question or just telling you the story about what's going on at work. It was what, when was the time when you didn't know what you were doing oh, so, yeah. so much? Okay, so, you great. You four hours ago. Four hours okay. ago, yes. So, it was literally, because he had her, his, Neil and I met at 4 p.m. Shout out to Neil that he's got like three or four references already. Yeah. <laughs> Neil's, Neil's my homie. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I like, been pushing super hard to do this and then like, I had a moment of indiscretion. Ah, no, I won't call it a moment of indiscretion. I would call it a moment of radical passion and misguided candor um, in a manager's meeting where I just said some stuff that was like really emotional and really raw, but not served in the right audience or in the right tone. <laughs> so I created this whole thing, but it did two things. One, it made me check my hubris because I had been pushing so hard and I was like totally convinced in my head. I was like, you're going to be director and you're going to be promoted in less than a year. And, yeah. you know, you have all of these things that you're responsible for. And you have all these people and these processes and these like strategic vision plans that you're responsible for. Um, and I was like pushing, pushing, and I got so like hyper focused mm. on it. But I was just like, I don't, I don't know. I actually don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what director shows up like in a company like this. Yeah. I've had a director title once before, but it was really inflated um, based on what I was doing in the company and the position it was in. So Wattlife had a director title in the past. The capacity didn't match this one. But I was just super focused on the positional power. I was like, okay, director, director, do it, you can do it. And I convinced myself. But through this whole situation, it exposed to me that I have a lot of, like, learning to do as far as, like, how to handle myself as showing up as an executive leader. And throwing that one word, executive, into leadership changes the game entirely. Like, Australian rules football is not the same as American <laughs> football. Yeah. And that's the difference. Doesn't that kind of suck, though? Does it feels like you gotta pad the edges a little bit to well, navigate? Take away some of your personality. Well, here's yeah. the thing: is that I am so emphatically me that my rough around the edges is either gonna sink or swim. I think that's great, though, because you all can always stay true to like who you are, as corny as that is. You don't have to like second guess yourself ever. Diesel, for, like, Diesel, it's it's way more than that. It's like, you can be you, but you also have to figure out what works. <laughs> glug, glug, glug. Screw the best sound. <laughs> I just love the way you said that. Diesel, let me, uh, let me tell you. Let me, let me explain you. We, we absolutely should have been doing video on this. Yeah, <laughs> she is so animated. The video right so, there would have been like Actually, the, I don't know. The, the books are great, but the wine cabinet is great. And the other books are I don't know. Yeah. Dude, I my eyebrows a, can conduct an orchestra. We need like a 360 video so everyone can Oh, it's see called everything. an owl. It's great. I've used those before. Oh, yeah. We have those in the office. Love I the have owls. to tell you, I wrote down these words you said. They're potential band names. Radical passion and misguided candor. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, but people, people, a lot of people kind of grok the whole concept of radical candor because that's like a whole thing in management and leadership. Like, exercise radical candor. There's like a book about it or I've something. I've never heard of that. What is oh, it? Oh, God. Radical candor <laughs> is just being a dick and honest at the same time. They're encouraging it. 
Yeah, they're saying? like radical but candor. Like, really? Do you they know, like, really want it when it I'm going to exercise some radical candor on you. Basically, I'm just going to tell you to... I, mean, I, I think... I'm not, I'm not sure I completely agree with that because we're humans. We're oh, not yeah. robots and we want to feel as if we're like being understood. Totally. And by being completely a dick all the time... You totally negate all that. I understand, like, being honest and, like, if you're fucking up, well, you got to tell people. Yeah. But at the same time, you got to be, you got to understand who you're working with. You got to play the emotional chess game, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you can't take their bush, their bishop, their rook, and their castle all in the same move. You got to be like, <laughs> I'm going to take your pawn. I'm going to give you a minute to get that rook out of the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... Is there more to the story from earlier today? Yes. So I got I got super focused on it. I did a thing. I recognized the thing that I well the things uh, plural that I said in that particular moment were probably not in the most uh, thoughtful of delivery capacity mechanisms. <laughs> oh, you're so good caressing these uh, descriptions. Whew. Um, it was pointed. It was emphatic, it was exacting, and it was succinct. Is this aimed towards one person? Uh, it was aimed towards a situation uh, that was influenced by three people. And I had to go on an apology tour. Hey! <laughs> but it was fine. It ended up being fine. It ended up, it ended up making a lot of really incredibly beneficial conversations that fell out of it over the next four weeks. However... What it did was it exposed my need for, now this is the whole thing about executive leadership versus leadership. Mm -hmm. It exposed my need for tactical refinement of the finer points of executive leadership skills. And so I'm kind of learning that. I'm like, you know, baby giraffe getting born, you know. I'm I'm already a big animal. (laughs) I already have a big personality. I already have a big impact. You know, falling nine feet out of a giraffe is going to make a big noise anyways. But when when I finally figure out how to stand up on those really weird wobby-nobby knees, I'm going to be bigger than I was when I landed. So I'm okay. It's fine. But it's just going to offset what my expectation was by about six months. Ultimately, grand scheme of things, not a big deal. But I needed that moment where, like, hubris dug its nails into my shoulders while it shook me and said, stop it. Like, pay attention. Like, you got way too focused on what you were doing and what you were striving for. So that's 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 a moment where I just jumped in full force. I was me. I didn't think about how me showed up. I just thought about achieving my emotional validation for whatever happened and I failed and I totally was like tail spinning and like you know I was in a piper cub and I was like Uh, airplane thing sorry (laughs) a piper air club is a two-seater single prop or double prop small personal plane Uh, very small you're probably going to go from like here to Everett in that comfortably in less than an hour (laughs) Not you, Everett. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was great. That was great. But anyway, so like that was one of those moments where I was like, "Woo, I'm just committing to this, and I'm owning it, and I did this, and it was like it was really validating because like <clears throat> part of my apology tour was I had to like recognize actually 
I really liked how I ended up phrasing it. And give me a second. I'm going to dive into Slack. I'm going to read y'all what I what I mm. said on my apology tour. This is a priceless story. Yeah, know? this is really incredible. Because, like, we could benefit so much from this without Fuck my maybe body. having going through that ourselves. That's what yeah. I love about, like, teaching and, like, social connections. Because, like, I know that I've failed a fuck ton. Like, yeah. I have a resume of fuck-ups rather than a resume of wins sometimes. And if I can take all of the things that I've ruined or blown up or dismantled <laughs> and give them to somebody else and say, hey, I'm going to give you this allegory or this story or this soliloquy or whatever type of way I want to tell it, and you get value out of it so you don't do the same thing that I have done my like duty as a human citizen. Mm-hmm. And that's my favorite part about social relationships. So <clears throat> what I said was... Hi, I need to feel that I, I feel, sorry, sort of cut. (laughs) Edit. Um, Hi, I feel I need to ping the group as a a whole in a moment of self-reflection and ownership. I totally recognize the grenade I threw into that conversation yesterday. Not particularly proud of shutting down the dialogue where I could have created a question that allowed people to come up with an individual and possibly internal conclusion with the same outcome. I want to apologize to the group as a whole for stifling convicted voices. People, people, people. Um, tagging people in Slack. Yep. I will be making time with each of you, so look out for that. I genuinely want to chat. I hope you can all be confident I've used this as a learning moment to find more effective, fact-based communication. And if I'm in a similar situation in the future... I will use those data points as opposed to speaking emotionally and letting my personal feelings get in the way of actually making progress. How was it received? Amazing. I cried a lot. I actually had a lot of crying. My face leaked. It was weird. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, a lot of the responses. So the most immediate response after that was um, from another uh, tech, uh, technical project manager she said thank you for your participation um, and uh, what did she say Crap. where did it go ah here it is uh, thank you for participation in that conversation and thank you for Maria and posting this it's an example of me how to be brave with my peers I do want to note that regardless of the delivery it woke up the room and for whatever reason caused everybody else who wasn't represented to take the floor I think we can all agree that was good and I was like damn that was cool mm-hmm. but I just like went full on I like you know William Wallace brave heart was like freedom <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so I totally believed that I was doing this right, and I just owned, and I continued to own until I saw the imminent doom, what I was doing. And I was like, you know what? I'm willing to fall on that. Like, it was like, I'm not going to call it seppuku, because it really wasn't killing my career, but I definitely put some, some halts on what I was doing. But yes, I had this one moment of setback, but like eight other people, because of this, ended up going farther and learning more and yeah. feeling more empowered. And I was like, you know what? I'm okay with that. So that was like my moment of like, I'm going to totally own just faking it and going and pushing hard and pushing blindly mm-hmm. into something and just learning from it. So yeah, that was a thing. 
So how did you look at leadership beforehand and then how you look at it now? And then if you're looking to get into an executive position, how will you... So that's already a loaded question without that third part. (laughs) So I looked at leadership before as being a convicted voice. I looked at leadership before as being a loud and exacting voice. Uh, But loud and exacting with tactical, reasonable, actionable, and measurable like influence. What do you mean exactly by exacting? So you have, so you don't talk in what ifs, you talk in how tos. Okay. Yeah. So exacting is like, you have these pontifications, you have these like big rationales, these big reasons, these big ideas, but then you say, and this is how it shows up and this is how you apply it and this is what it looks like and this is how you continue it. So that's exacting. So like you exact revenge, you exact, yeah, like that kind of thing. And from there... That was my first kind of inclination about leadership. And then I realized that you have to show up in different ways to different people in different situations and different connotations. So in that moment, in, in similar moments, you have to show up as an ambassador of the brand and the business and the board. Like you have to represent the initiatives of the company. And other times you have to show up as representing the initiatives of the social contract. And other times you have to show up as the initiatives of the specific team that you're managing. And other times you have to show up as the initiatives of the project that you're working on. And you have to be really judgmental in how those relationships and how those faces ebb and flow. Uh, I'm sure most of you nerds out there have watched Game of Thrones. And it's really interesting when you kind of um, allegorically look at the faceless man and they have to become so many different things and they have to fit the situations and they have to like go through all of these metamorphoses to understand the people that they're interacting with to gain their favor to help them through whatever situation they're in or help them out of whatever situation you're in and you kind of have to do that in executive leadership which is strange because executive leadership in most people's minds is like this altruistic thing that you just are Yeah, but it's You never are one thing in executive leadership. You are what you need to be, which is like something I didn't know until four and a half hours ago. (laughs) So you have to, you have to be able to shape shift. You have to be able to mold and flex. And um, I don't know if anybody aside from me knows the reference of Alex Mack when she like melted into the pool of like weird shiny liquid, but she had to just like go in and out of these various forms. Do you remember Nickelodeon? Yeah, Alex Mack, no. Secret World of Alex Mack. She was a girl who would like, like melt. That. Oh man! Hashtag TBT. Throwback Tuesdays. Alice Wonderland. Not a Nickelodeon. Well, I know Alice Nickelodeon. Wonderland, not a Nickelodeon. Oh, oh, I don't know. Maybe. Just the oh no, this was like '90s Nick. I was personally more of a, a cartoon network guy. Oh, you're one of those. Yeah. I watched like all that in Keenan and Kel. Yeah, but like daytime. Well, how are you watching TV during the day? No, not like back in the daytime, <laughs> like between five and seven. Like the I evening. was a sports kid. Yeah, oh. I was sports I too. I didn't watch a lot of daytime video games besides Tony Hawk Pro Skater. Oh, my brother loved that game. Skate, skate. Anyway, so you have to like kind of go in and out of all of this like different shape-shifty, like, non-plasmic, non-solid thing. And it's really interesting because when you're an independent contributor, when you're a 
lower leader, when you're a you know principal, a lead, uh, whatever, you see executive leadership. Like I said, you use that word altruistic. You, you see executive leadership as this altruistic body. And then when you get closer and closer and closer and closer to it, to eventually when you're in it, you realize how chimera they have to be. You know, how of two abilities they are. They have to flex. They have to be strong. They have to... Um, be empathetic, they have to be listening, they have to push back, they have to take it in, they have to do all of these things kind of all at the same time, and you're like, oh, son of a bitch, that's hard. Uh, <laughs> so in a moment, one of these characteristics is at the forefront, and none of them are fully sacrificed. Right, right. right. Like they're always somewhat present. Yeah. So you're choosing based on the room in the audience. And like, Neil, for his fifth shout-out today, <laughs> he kind of taught me that in about four sentences. He's like, Sometimes when you're in a meeting and you hear somebody present this project and you know it's totally fucked from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> it's fucked. Is this, is this a verbatim quote? No, no, it's Neil kind of... great. No, yeah. Neil is great. Neil is great. But he like laid some super wisdom on me and he goes, so I'm going to try to get as close to verbatim yeah, as possible. Sorry no, it's great. But uh, um, he's such a great guy. Oh, man. When you really listen to what he says, he says good shit. But you have to get past sometimes the how he says it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so it's close to verbatim as it can get. Sometimes when you're in a meeting and somebody's presenting a project and you know it's going to sink and you know that the requirements are wrong, you just have to sit back and you have to listen. And you have to listen to every question that comes out and you have to listen to every sentence that they say. And then you have to recognize at a certain point that you need to schedule a one-on-one with that person afterwards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then that's how you... like. Executive leadership, like I know we've all had like, you know, directors and VPs and C-level whoever's and you're like, that fucking person just rolls over all the time. They're in these meetings and they hear this shit and they don't do anything about it. They don't say anything. And for whatever reason, I had this like cascade of emotion come over me and I went, oh my God, I totally misunderstood how these people approach problems. These people approach problems intimately. They approach problems one-on-one. They've learned that public forums create ego and one-on-one create solutions. Mm. And they focus on that. And they are more solution-oriented than ego-oriented. Because when you broach issues, problems, questions, um, critiques with people in a in a room of two three 12 20 people and you're like how does that work how does that serve product how does that help our customers the immediate you're like well i have totally done the research and, and the ego starts eating away and eating away at the productivity mm-hmm. but when they take it all in and they remember stuff and they have that one-on-one with those persons or person and they're like i'm concerned about the inception of this project because of reasons one two three four and i would like to rework this mm-hmm they actually get a lot more solutions because that person is like, oh, okay, well, I see that. And you actually respect that you're not calling me out in front of a whole bunch of people and damaging my credibility in a yeah. public forum. And I was like, oh. And you're then empowering them in a different way. Right. And you're not only empowering that individual, mm-hmm. but you're actually empowering everyone in that meeting. Right. Because you didn't shoot them down. Right. And so now they are still apt to go and be afraid to fail or not afraid to fail and not afraid to push Mm -hmm. the boundaries Mm -hmm. that's really fascinating i totally learned that like today and 
Six shout out for Neil. Hashtag Neil. <laughs> brought some knowledge to me. <laughs> but it was really crazy. And I was like, oh, I got to give you more credit and more space. Because I, I mean, I, everyone gets mad at, or frustrated or, you know, why don't I have enough for my manager? But when mm-hmm. you just give them the space to do what they do, sometimes they just like throw some really good knowledge on you. And you just have to be ready to hear it. And sometimes you have to hear past what they say and hear what they mean. Which is interesting. So, wading through maybe the tone of voice, meaning maybe wading through the words mm-hmm. and diving into the meaning. Right. Yeah. So when Neil's like, "Hey, maybe you should like hear what they're saying and have a one-on-one with them afterwards," that like spawned this whole thought for me. I was like, "Oh, I need to not publicly question their credibility. So when they create another project, people aren't immediately like, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong?'" Yeah. They're like, "Oh, I'm hearing all of this, and I'm assuming that it's either going to be vetted or handled to find all of its blind spots by people that have more purview than I do." Yeah. I'm like, "Oh." That nuance is the thing that I was missing. So going all the way back to how do you push really hard and learn from it. Like, I wouldn't have learned that if I didn't just burn a whole bunch of, you know, grass behind me Mm -hmm. as I was going through this. I didn't burn any bridges. I just burned some grass. Yeah. I think you, you only burn bridges when you're not able to go and tell the person, hey, I messed Mm -hmm. up. That's when the bridges burn because you don't. You don't apologize. You don't show. You don't take into account how you mm-hmm. made the how you made them feel. Yeah, that's when bridges get burned. Yeah. I kind of want to switch topics yeah. and go into how you, you talk about executive leadership, not me. Um, no, because I mean that story was amazing. <laughs> that story was amazing, um, and I think a lot of people, not only ourselves, but we can take immediate. Mm-hmm. Um, value from that story like because mm. i hope so yeah totally and that's what this whole podcast is about right but i want to switch gears and i want to talk about how because you're at moz moz good very well-known company but you did your own thing for a while and i'm really interested to know that how you got that set up how you made the decision to go freelance because i think that's interesting and i think not only freelancing and, and running your own business and getting that set up and taxes mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff but also being able to choose the clients that you want there's mm. just so much there's so many decisions that go into going to it that and decision making can really tire people out because mm-hmm. there's so many things that need to decide and if you're the only person no one else is making decisions for you telling you this is how you need to do it because mm-hmm. you need to make a decision every single time no oh, man so that was a journey and a half so I had the good fortune of getting a job where I had an um, unlimited travel budget supported by the fact that my office was in Irvine, California, which was 972 physical miles away. It was about two hours and 45 minutes on a uh, Boeing 737. Um, And it was interesting. Uh, I was the director of e-commerce for North America uh, for Alcatel, which was a mobile phone manufacturing distributing company. Um, Technically, I worked for the company, the parent company, which was called TCT Communications. They eventually ended up owning TCL televisions, which are seen in like Walmart, Costco, um, and Amazon. It's like a budget TV, so like kind of in the same family as Vizio. Uh, They also bought BlackBerry. 
But they didn't buy RIM Research because RIM Research is a U.S. Canadian research company and TCT Communications is a Chinese holding company. So you had conflict of interest for government contracts. So anyways, so we ended up owning those three brands. So I had this crazy job where I managed uh, e-commerce presence for North America. So I had like this varying degree of teams, anywhere from like five to 15 people over the course of two years. But I'd fly from Seattle to Orange County John Wayne Airport on Monday morning. I'd land at about 9.10. I'd get to my office by like 9.45. I'd work all day, work all day Tuesday, work all day Wednesday, and I'd be on the 6.20 flight every Wednesday back from Irvine to Seattle. And I did it every day for like two, or every week for like two years. Um, and sometimes so I'd have to go up and down in the same day on Thursdays or Fridays or Thursdays and Fridays. So I just like blogged a shit ton of miles. Personal life suffered, my social life suffered, my mental health suffered because I didn't realize that while externally the glamour of jet setting and having ridiculous status and logging 380,000 miles in a calendar year, Nazis. it's bananas. Do you mind me asking how old you were at this time? Oh, I was 28. So it felt really cool at first. Oh, yeah. The first six months, I was like, Yo, Ma, let me tell you about this job I got. (laughs) (laughs) You're flying with your friends. You've got your status from time to time. Like every once in a while when you are flying with your friends. Oh, you don't understand. I didn't didn't have the luxury of flying with my friends at that point. Because I was home Thursday through Sunday, but... It was kind of a crapshoot if I had to buy a flight at 5 a.m. to be on it by 6.20 because my CEO was kind of a douchebag. Because he has this thing where he, like, he'd call Shots a meeting. fired on I, the podcast. Oh. He knows who he is. <laughs> I almost said the name. I'm not going to do it. He'll be listening to this someday. Dude. <laughs> you better be. Because there was a whole thing we'll talk about when uh, the mic's off. Yeah. Okay. I think you already t- I told you about it's it. Hoo hoo hee hoo. I really love to hear it. <laughs> right, Sorry, NPR, this is not for you. <laughs> <laughs> the following story might involve sig- uh, delicate situations and explicit content. <laughs> Viewer discretion is advised. Yeah, <laughs> Anyways, so he would do this thing like he'd call a meeting. And if you called in on the phone and he was done listening to you, he would hang up the phone. And there was no way that you could get back on the line because somebody had to be there and accept the call. So I learned survival tactics of, oh, when he calls the meeting, you go down in person. Because otherwise he'd hang up the phone and you could not get your voice heard edgewise. So it was kind of like a punitive, like, fuck you, dude. I'm going to spend $600 today just because you won't answer the phone. I know. It was bananas. Anyway, so I did that for almost two years. Um, and then I got so burnt out. I was like, I got fat. I got sad. I got like lost. Not, I didn't lose my friends, but I lost touch with a lot of my really close friends. You know, I had two cats. I mean, look at, look at that stupid, fuzzy son of a bitch. He is just the most handsomest guy, but I got to spend like no time with him and he's old. So he's about to turn 13, right? Oh, wow. Right. And I was like, man, he's getting old. And I'm, I, I'm just like dreading the day. Like I have to go down there and yeah, just come home and he's like dead on the floor. And I was like, nope, can't be okay with that. So I, I quit my job. I like straight up quit. Two hours, or two years in? You, you uh, and it was like 20 months-ish. It was close to close, two years. Yeah. And I quit. I was like, I'm done. Two weeks, two weeks, done. Done. 
Um, and I kind of joke around that it was like my professional equivalent of moving to an island, starting a farm, and calling myself Moonbeam. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I started my own company. <laughs> and thankfully, I had an so I did a lot of um, consulting work for a company when I was in Seattle before I got that job where I was traveling all the time. Um, so the way I got that job, so I was at a consulting company. I had a bunch of clients over the years. I was there for two years and I had this one client who her and I got to become very, very close. She's still one of my closest friends in the whole entire world. Um, I value her as a person, as a friend, as a mentor, um, you can give her a shout out if you want. Liz Pyers, you're the best. Shout outs. <laughs> Hashtag Liz. Hashtag Liz for life. <laughs> We're all about the shout outs. Oh my God. She is incredible. Um, she's, she, she worked at Dell as a VP of um, e-commerce in the early 90s when women didn't have tech jobs. Yeah. She's, you know, she's, I'm 5'11". She's almost as tall as I am. She's blonde. She's fuck you. She's take no prisoners. She's give me the data. She's just as real as brass tacks. And she worked through Dell, gained credibility, references. Like she just badassed it all the way through the 90s. It's funny that you say that because Everett and I both worked at read a company called Readout beforehand. Mm-hmm. And two of our biggest relationships were really strong willed women, mm-hmm. were probably our. Our partner managers mm-hmm. were them. They were really strong-willed women. Nice. And it was just really interesting. Yeah, it seems very common there. Yeah. At Dell? Still, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dell was one of them. Yeah, and it was the early 90s. And it was like when they were still figuring out what like workplace sexual um, uh, assault looked like. <laughs> like, what what is oh, that word? I don't yeah. understand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and she just like foraged. Like she, she worked at Dell as e-commerce become became a thing. And it became like a practice there. And she just like, anyways, so she came with a lot of stuff. She, and she was, she actually had my job at Alcatel. Then she got promoted to the VP of product at, I believe it was the VP of product or the VP of, no, VP of digital. That's what it was. She got promoted to VP of digital and she called me up one day. She goes, yo, because she talks to me. Totally kidding. She's like, yo. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it sounds like she might. Yeah. It sounds like, yeah. Uh, actually, the way she would have said it is like, <laughs> no, it's really funny. she's from Texas. Actually. She's from Texas. See, she's, from, she's from Austin. She goes, hi, so um, I got promoted and uh, I got my, my old job is open. Um, are you interested in being the director of e-commerce for North America? And I'm like, Liz, are you giving me a job? She's like, yeah, can you just, like, send me your resume? Um, I need to, like, formalize this and shit. So, like, send it to Zyra. It would be great. Just like Tracy Satterwhite. That's yeah. the voice you just did. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Shout out to Tracy. Hashtag Tracy. Yeah. Hashtag shout out. And Liz. She really seems like a badass. Dude, Liz is the best. Love Liz. She, I don't want to tell too much of her story, but she has gone through so much horse shit, and she is so resilient. She is so resilient. Like, nothing. She had a devastating death in the family last year that like shook her to her core she took like six months and she's like back wow back and i'm like damn she started her own company she's doing her own consulting thing she's reaching out she's like hey i want to do some branding what do you think about this like liz you were how are you vertical (laughs) (laughs) and she that just is who she is it's amazing 
Like, such, such a role model. Such a role model. But anyway, so she's like, all right, I just need you to send me that resume. And I'll get you, and, and you can start working for me. And, you know, it'll be like old times. It'll be great. And I was like, damn, yes. So I took it, like, carte blanche. I was like, yes. Blindly followed this woman into battle. And I don't regret a single moment of it. So that's how I got the job. And then I got, I started in, I, actually, I started on April 20th. Hmm. Mm. April 20th. <laughs> you celebrate? God, no. I was in California. That's crazy. <laughs> so I started April 20th, and then, like, November, she ended up leaving, and I took over her shit. And, like, thankfully, she was still around, and we had, you know, wind down Mondays regularly. So um, I went through all of that and then I just kept going and kept going and I kept trying to keep it afloat and I just like realized that my relationships are falling off and I was unhappy and like the thing that really sealed it for me, I remember getting back to my hotel room, room 214 and I, did, I had the same hotel room all the time. Do you ever see that number 214? Oh, and I get triggered. Yeah. It is so triggered. Sure. It's terrible. It's terrible because all Marriott smell the same. So every time I smell a Marriott, I'm like... I was supposed to hide. Ugh. I actually really like Marriott, so yeah, that's the no, problem. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you've got so much gold. So many points. points. I still have platinum status. Yeah. Like three years later. That's crazy. Bananas. I'm still gold on Delta. Like, come on. Wow. It's 75K in Delta for two years. Or not 75K. 75K in Alaska. Alaska, yeah. yeah. I remember my, like, tour at Christmas time when I had all of those upgrades. And yeah. it was like, yeah. <laughs> wow. She literally, like, sent me uh, a text message. She's like, hey, I have, like, a bunch of, like, uh, I have a bunch of Alaska upgrades that I can't use. Do you want to use them? This is, like, just goes into, like, Maria's amazingly giving. <laughs> and and I'm like, oh, yeah, I love it. I'm, I'm flying to Palm Springs for, like, a month. Then I have, like, I'm because I'm my, my cheap ass with the saver fares. And you can't apply upgrades to saver fares. <laughs> like, it's oh, X-Class. No. I'm yeah. like, I need L-Class and above, Dorrance. <laughs> Uh, on, some diesel. <laughs> so every single time I book a flight, I literally think of you in saver class or main cabin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I ended up having like six upgrades left because they were expired on uh, December 31st. And so I had six upgrades and I just happened to be in Portland Airport on December 30th. So I still had all these upgrades. So I was literally walking. I was just like looking at flights and I was like, oh, that's not far enough to be worth it. And I went to the counter. It was like Chicago. Um, Pasco, so it was like Portland to Pasco, mm-hmm. um, and then there was another one that was like to Kalispell, which is in Alaska, yep. and then it was another one to like Albuquerque, and I ended up doling out like a whole bunch of upgrades, and I went to the gate agent, and I was like, hey, I've got these upgrade codes, and I want to give them to somebody anonymously, and I'd prefer them to be a woman between the ages of like 18 and 35 traveling by herself, just like I just want to give it to them. And I don't want them to be eligible for, like, natural upgrades, like, through the system. Yeah, so the, their, their status. Yeah, so, like, non-status people. And my favorite one was this girl. She was, like, 19. She was going home for Christmas. Because um, it was, obviously it was, like, or no, sorry. I was flying out on December 23rd, not the 30th. Because it was just before Christmas Eve. And so she was flying out December 23rd. And it was this girl by herself. And she was going to Chicago. And it was, like, a red-eye flight or whatever. And the gate agent like plied it and she called the girl and I didn't, and I just walked away, but I like walked far enough away that I could still see what was going on. And she called the girl to the counter and she's like, uh, blah, 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 please come to the counter for a ticket. 
information. Yeah, they're like, oh, what the fuck? Am I, am I going to get booted? Right? Probably. So she comes up and she's like, got her. She's got like the a 35, not a 35, she's got like a 65 liter backpack on. Like her, the, the backpack, <laughs> yeah, like the I brain know. is stuffed. Yeah, I know like exactly. it is packed. Like she is staying for a minute back wherever she's going. And the gate agent was like, oh, um, you know, here's your ticket. And I, could, I didn't really hear the conversation, but like you could see the head bobbling and she like slid the ticket across and the girl just goes, sorry, she just like covers her mouth and she like hunches over. She's got this backpack as big as she is on her back and she just hunches over and she's like heaving. She's like, oh my God, are you kidding me? And the woman, and she and she's like wearing like hiking boots yeah. and you know, not to like stereotype or whatever, but she was not planning on flying in style. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it was, it was a big airplane. I think it was a triple seven. So it was like, you know, more than just your usual 45 degree seats. Yeah. And she like flipped out and I was like, that's, that's the reason for living right yeah. there. Like this girl has no idea who I am. She has no idea who I ever will be. Yeah. She just that was like, right. That was the best part. So I have to tell a story. Maria's I've told a story like five times, <laughs> at least maybe not to Maria, but I've explained like how Maria and I first like met. Um, we're at rational. It's like late on it. It's like late. It's like six. You might have heard it. Yeah. But I gotta just tell it anyways. Uh, it's like six thirty on like a, some some day. It's all it's all dark in the offices. And uh, I'd never met her before. She's like sitting like probably like 15, 20 feet away from me, facing away from me. And I like I'm listening to music, but I for some reason take my headphones off and I hear her on the phone and she is she gives a, she basically gives away like 10 or like 15 yoga classes that, from Orange County from Orange County when she used to work down there she's like I'm not going to be able to go down there she there was no like can I get a refund like I've moved it was like can you just give these to people who would be in need of these who might not be able to afford the class and I like I heard her say that and she hung up she hung up and everything I was like you're like yeah I was like hey that was really really cool of you <laughs> It's really funny. I, I, that's how I tell the story how we met too. Yeah. Not like I, don't, I was like, yeah, I just gave away a whole bunch of classes. This guy from behind me yelled, "Yo, that was cool." <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, it was pretty Such awesome. A story. I don't know. There's something like I talked about this the other day with Peter. I understand that I have like a certain fortune. Like I've gotten to a certain place. Like I make good money. I have a good job, and I want to use that. And push it forward to people who were, were I'm not going to say past me, but like where I can identify where they're coming from. Where like, I have distinct memories of standing in front of a gas station back home being like, can I have a couple bucks so I can just get home? Yeah. Please. Like my mom, she did good. She paid for like as much as she could have, but she also made me understand the value of a dollar. And she never, she's like, oh, yeah, you can have any car you want when you turn 16. I was like, wait, what? And she's like, but you got to pay for it. (laughs) (laughs) Caveat. She's like, you can go to any college you want. You can, you can go to any school you want. You can do any degree you want. You got to pay for it. So like, I had to learn all that. But like, sometimes try as you might, like you just come up against stuff and you're like, this is hard, like hard. And you like want to do your best and you want to do, you know, anything possible to get through it. But like, Sometimes you're just situational limitations are difficult. So like, I just want to 
help people when they feel like they can't get any lower or they can't go anywhere past where they are. Just like a little bit, just a little feel good. How do you, do you have a question? I do before we get back to uh, the personal consulting, but it's a good segue into, I uh, scoured your LinkedIn a little bit. Do you remember everything that's on there? You've got a lot of information on there. I've got a lot of information on there. Um, Adjunct professor Mm -hmm. at Bellevue. Um, Mm -hmm. So this kind of mantra you're describing, I would imagine applies to that. Oh, totally. It's kind of interesting. So I'm currently teaching a class uh, Mondays and Wednesdays. I taught yesterday. Um, The one I'm teaching right now is graphic design basics. So it's a certificate program for mid-career professionals that want to transition their career out of where they are into graphic design, UX, or uh, web design career. It's really interesting. Um, So it's kind of interesting how things happen. So um, what was it? I think it was like August 30th. uh, Peter and I have this standing tradition called Wednesday. So we go on a a date every Wednesday because we're always ridiculously busy. So we always try to make one day a week where we got to dinner. And it was like, hang out with each other. So we were walking home from Wednesday and we weren't really talking to each other because, um, you know, we we're just down at Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. And I turned to him and I said, you know, I'd really like to start teaching someday when I'm ready. And he goes, yeah, that's a good idea. And then we didn't say anything anymore. And it was, that was the end of the conversation. So it was Wednesday. So Friday we fly to Denver to hang out with our friends. You met Danny briefly. She li- That's where she lives. Um, that And then that Friday night we were at... Um, uh, uh, Colorado University at Boulder and they have this free like astrology night where they, you can go to the telescopes and look at everything and so we, it was a ridiculously cl- clear night and like the moon was out and Mars was out and the space station was going to fly over during that time so it was like this really cool event so I get this email from my mentor not Liz another mentor and um He's like, hey, I submitted your resume to Bellevue College because they're looking for professors for the information architecture program. And I turned the phone to Peter and he goes, oh, damn. Because literally just that Wednesday, the first time I ever articulated, I was like, hey, I want to teach. And then unsolicited, I get this email on Friday night. And I was like, okay, universe. I was saying universe and you're looking at stars. Right? It's so bananas. (laughs) So, like, I look at them, we're looking at the moon, we're, like, looking in outer space, we're, like, finding the brevity of how small we really are, and then I get this email, and I was like, oh, shit. So, he, like, solicited my, um, he, he sent my email unsolicited, like, hey, you're going to apply you for this. I get accepted into the adjunct, adjunct professor program, I start teaching, and I was like, this is amazing, this is the best thing ever. So, yeah, and then I started teaching information architecture in the fall. And I'm teaching graphic design basics, and then I'm teaching information architecture again in a couple weeks. And yeah, it's crazy. So you probably, on a daily basis, get to take things from the office to the classroom. God damn like do this I. story that you told us earlier, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. So that whole design book I was talking about, Sprint, I've actually taken the constructs of that and I applied it to the IA class because like, they have to figure out how to do rapid development of a website and how to do the whole IA process. And so I've taken all of those sections and I applied it to the class. And then people were like, oh my God, I've learned so much from this class. And I was like, I'm literally doing with you the same thing I do with people on my team. And they're like, I've never felt more in touch with like how the world works. That's so great because I feel like so many classes, they try and bring real world things and learnings. Mm-hmm to the students and it just doesn't translate 
I don't have a formal education in UX. I my formal education is printed graphic design for editorial. So like I was bent on being a magazine designer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have anywhere close to a formal education. But it's also rare that your professor has real world experience. Yeah, that's like true. The few that I did, it was like you could tell you're like this guy is ahead above the rest. Mm-hmm. What did you go to school for? Uh, business and marketing. My school. Northwest University. Mm, so you're not a coog. No. How does this work? Sometimes I am, but I don't really care that much. No, I said a coog, not a kook. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. I didn't think you said kook. We know it works. For those of you playing at, ro- at home, Dorns is laughing way harder than he should. <laughs> oh, that was great. That was great. Oh, um, yeah, it's top notch. We met at work. Yeah, Which work? We met at Redap. Those company I came from. So what was your position? Redap to... I'm actually. still in sales. Are you at Redap still? Mm-hmm. So Will's gone to now two jobs from there. Yeah. What keeps you there? What's what's enticing about that? I have a good thing going. I get exposed to new stuff constantly. Um, I'm actually in a weird transition right now where we acquired a company last mm-hmm. year, a Which, services company okay. called the Tunix in Bellevue. Mm-hmm. They have a kind of an ecosystem of, of kind of services around Azure, Microsoft's mm-hmm, cloud. Mm-hmm. I've been selling hardware, building physical data centers for six-ish, six, seven years at Redapt. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now our business is shifting to consulting. So it's like I get exposure to a new job without leaving right away. Mm-hmm. But I built a book book of business over eight years. Like, okay. So you had the same you had the same job or you were in the same group? No, we were Not the same job. He was in business development. Oh, okay. So I would, for a lot of my clients, I'll bring together several technology partners, mm-hmm. a lot of Dell servers, sure. software, you know, providers. Part of his job was working with those partners, onboarding them into our little ecosystem. So, so what do you think gives that position more staying power? Because, you know, you would think, you know, the marketing partnerships, the kind of partner integrations, that would be the sexy thing. But yeah. hardware, how is, how is hardware sexy? It's, it's your book of business. It's mm-hmm. your, you know, I, I have a way to directly impact my my income every mm-hmm. year where in a lot of positions at Redef you don't really. You're mm-hmm. kind of just it's it's somewhat static. So you get to determine how big your carrot is at the end of the quarter. Yeah, for better or for worse. Mm. How's that feel? Kind of knowing you're the master of your own destiny. It was crazy at first, but I love it now. Now it see it feels like I would never want it any other way. Because you're comfortable or just because you know how to play the game? Yes. That's not an answer. Yeah. No, it's not. Yes to both. Pick pick one and talk about it. Um, I can can I pick both? No. I mean, talk about how you learned how to play the game. I wouldn't. I, it's not a job that you could stay at without learning how to play the game. I was very lucky. The way that I got my job was um, through a mutual connection I had to at the time. Mm-hmm. Actually, still at this time, one of our top sales guys, and so he kind of. Took me under his wing, helped accelerate some stuff, mm-hmm. but I ate shit for several several years, right? Cold calling, trying to right. all that's not really eating shit, right? Fear, fear, fa- fear of failure, or just acceptance of fucking up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but now I've like I've built something that mm-hmm. I kind of own, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but I'm stubborn in some ways. There's definitely times where I think, you know, I look at other jobs and other businesses and go, "What it's like over there," but mm-hmm. you know. It's allowed me to kind of live a life that I really like so far. So do you think your willingness to stay is tenacity or masochism? 
Mm. I'm not sure. I mean, have you thought about it? No, not really. Hmm. I've thought about a lot of things, but <laughs> I've I've definitely I'm stubborn in many many yeah. regards. So there's kind of a like a understood but never said kind of silent culture and technology that 18 months is probably a good lifespan wherever you go. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you've been there for longer than 18 months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what what do you think is adding like how do you how do you continue to add value to your career without stagnating yourself in relevancy? Part of it is what I'm going through right now. I'm meeting with all these people from Azure. I'm learning a totally different world. That's totally new to me. It is like I have a new job, mm-hmm. you know. But at so the what same were you doing before Azure? Selling hardware for the most part. Just the hardware? Yeah. So just literally no connectivity to anything else outside of the physical device? There, the In terms of revenue, it mm-hmm. looks like just the hardware. There mm-hmm. was a lot of services revenue tied to it, but it, you know, was dwarfed in comparison to the hardware revenue to where now that business was growing so fast that it's like you either got to adapt or, you know, you're going to be left behind. Adapt or die. So externally facing, it seems like you've had a lot of cultivation, like learning new hardware, learning new ecosystems, learning new technology stacks, you know, for greater or for worse. Mm-hmm. But how internally have you been cultivated as a person at that business? Um, not a lot. I would say... It's a lot of self-driven, yeah. Yeah, that was. But it's it's also by way of necessity. Mm-hmm. I'll go into a meeting and a client might expose me to something new, and I realize I've got to go. Mm-hmm. I've got to go get my shit together. A whole other way mm-hmm. of thinking. But as far as internal support, you know, it's a family business. Mm-hmm. We have, I think, at this point, seventeen or eighteen sales guys, and we're all kind of franchised in a sense that mm-hmm. I have my way of making things work and. You know, Joe Schmo over there has his way, you know. So how do you kind of satisfy your need for professional nurturing with your kind of understanding of survival tactics? It's probably underserved a little bit, for sure. It's definitely something that I think about, like, talking to Will. Mm-hmm. He's doing things, and I'm like, I'm not doing any of that, and mm-hmm. that sounds awesome. What were you talking about last week with suggestions, building new new tools, new ideas, how you can bring them. Yeah, we had like a a ton of that. We basically had like a a shark tank for our whole global team. Mm -hmm. And it was, and it was basically you. So we have a global team. I work at AWS. Um, I'm in partner management and we have a global team of partner managers and people in Singapore the sound people in Singapore <laughs> Japan um, EMEA North America South America <laughs> I had no wish I heard what did she say she said how's your butt <laughs> <coughs> shout out to food poisoning everyone food poisoning well, there's, at least so. there's no prickles in it there's so, no prickers in your butt yeah there's no prickers yeah. it's not that I know of. Um, but we had this thing where thank you you guys it was, hey, we're going to put you on random teams from all different geos, and you're going to have to come up with an idea, with idea with one idea, and you're going to have to pitch it to all the managers, because there's a manager, of course, for each geo. And then your idea is, how can we improve the business? How can we improve customer experience? It's beer. How can we improve, like, 
how can we improve like X? Mm-hmm. And then we worked on it and then we pitched it and it was really, and then based off of whatever was picked. Oh, welcome, welcome. Um, it's okay, we can pause for a second. Okay, we'll pause. Pause it. No, it's fine. No, we'll just... Okay. Just, just Hi, how are nice, nice to meet you again. We'll re-meet yeah, we'll, we'll re- you. See you later. Yeah. All right, we can still do... the. We sequestered them. Yeah, that's fine. No. Sorry. It's it's literally our friend. Don't be sorry. This is great. <laughs> One of the things I love about some of the podcasts that I listen to mm-hmm. is, like, the randomness. <laughs> and, like, I don't really love the super produced... Nice. You know, transitions and all that. Like, so the me, two, I think the gold comes out of this. Type so of the three females in this house are my three best friends in Seattle. So Danny moved away. She, her and her husband got this amazing job in Colorado. Like, he's literally a rocket scientist right now. And she is a forensic explosive engineer. I understand why she hella skis. Right? With no abs or something, whatever. Well, she whatever. just had emergency abdominal surgery two weeks ago. Lisa's a bioinformaticist. Jess is the district psychologist for the district of Duval. So, like, she's a district-level psychologist. She's, like, interesting, really bananas. It's really interesting. So, Danny has a PhD. Lisa has a master's. JB has, Jess has a master's. And I barely squeaked out with a bachelor's degree. And it's really funny because, like, all of my friends have, like, these really, you know, intense pedigrees. And I'm, like... I have an art degree, and I like to put crayons in my nose like this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is, but it's so crazy, because, like, we all live in this crazy universe. We all relate to each other in ridiculous ways. Yeah. But, I don't know, people get brought together for really weird instances. So, I'm going to play a game with you. Want to play a game? <laughs> hey, Daisley, want to play a game? <laughs> so, me... Lisa, Jess, and Danny all share one ridiculous coincidence that like really compacted and confounded our development as people. Hint, we've already talked about it, about me, in this podcast. It wasn't going into the, the sticker bushes? It was not <laughs> doing a cartwheel into sticker bushes. Something related to your parents? Yep. Your upbringing? Yep. Single parents? Yep. Is that is there more to that? Mm-hmm. Was there a loss? Yep. Father. We all lost a parent before the age of seventeen. Yeah. It was really crazy though because like we didn't realize that like there's actually a couple there's three other people in our in our really ridiculously group, close group of friends that all lost a parent before we were you know adult age. Wow. And we had no idea until like five years into the friendship because we all met playing soccer, right? Oh, but like yeah. for whatever reason, like the group of us just like kind of all congealed to each other. And like we became so tight and so close. And like over time, it was like, oh, I lost my father. I lost my mother. I lost my father. I lost my mother. And uh, so Danny lost her dad. Um, Jess lost her mom. Lisa lost her dad. I lost my dad. Ashley lost her dad. Eva lost her dad. Yeah, so it was like, you know, mostly dads, but like, That's crazy. we all came together. We didn't realize it until like over time, we're like, we had been friends for a long time and it just kind of came out. We're like, oh shit. Like, we, there's something here. And like, I was talking to Jess about it. Trend for sure. Well, it's just like there's these unspoken understandings of like how we approach and process various situations. And like, I can look her in the eye and know what she's feeling sometimes when it comes to like certain situations and there's only like 
certain people, so like military vets, people who lost a parent at an early age, where you can not say anything to each other, but something can happen and you can look at each other very deeply and hear soliloquies worth of information. Mm-hmm. And it, there's a, nothing has to be said, you know, just a couple strokes of an eyebrow or a bat of yeah. an eye and you like, you hear it and you feel it and you're there and it's processed and it's agreed upon and it's done. Yeah, well, they say 90% of language is body language and mm-hmm. 10% is speech, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It's kind of crazy, but it's really valuable and it's really funny. Like when I see them all in the same room, I'm like, those are my people. Them yeah, is my people. Yeah, sure. tell it too. Just being an observer here. Well, it's funny because like Lisa and Jess and Danny and I would all do yoga together. And I remember one time the yoga instructor came up to us and was like, you guys play on a sports team together, don't you? And we were all like, you know, one, two, three, four yoga mats right in a row. And we're like, well, yeah, we play soccer. And she goes, you all are just so in sync and you're so aware of each other's bodies and space and movements and all of that stuff. That's crazy like, that oh. she knows that. Yeah, just as a yoga teacher, like one thing, like we were all really aware of like each other and that kind of stuff. And she's like, but there was like more, there was like a deeper level of awareness. Like you were aware of each other, but then you cared about it. Which I was like, mm. oh, you could tell it just by like how we made space for each other. It was probably such a unique yeah. bond and like types of empathy oh, totally. and perspective that nobody else can understand. Yeah. yeah. Certain, it's something weird. I wouldn't change anything about it. Yeah. You know, as much Crisis. as I'd like to have, you know, my dad and like normally air quotes, but I love the life that happened because of everything that happened. Yeah. So it is what it is. And I am who I am. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. I love it. I have yeah. a random question though that Bring I want it. to ask. You seem to have a very good memory. Have you been told that before? Yes. It's bizarre. Is there any explanation? Or? Um, so I like to remember trivial trivia. So if you ever want to do bar trivia or geeks who uh, drink. I'm terrible at that. So you'd be a great addition. Right? But here's the thing. Is that like trivial trivia is what I hold on to. Like people try to step me up on it. Like this one guy. I was like, oh, I'm really good at trivia trivia. He goes, oh, yeah. Well, what's the name of the airplane that dropped the first bomb? Or what's the, he said, what's the airplane that dropped the bomb on, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? I'm like, which bomb and he's like oh <laughs> and i was like were you talking about the anola gay and the little boy and he's like oh you just out triviaed that yeah i'll never forget that because he was so mad he was literally so he tried to be like you know look how smart i am and i'm like oh yeah um, you missed a detail bucky yeah. <laughs> tree, pal. i'm like don't even front uh, but it's really funny like i decide on what's important and it's like usually like these really bananas details you know, it's I, I mean, you've kind of seen it, like, over the random ass years. Yeah. Where, like, remember something very specific. Um, and then you've both seen this for, you know, those of you who are on the other end of the microphone. Um, when I was recalling the conversation that I had with Neil that we were talking about, like, forever ago, and I was trying to, like, remember the words that he was using, I kind of just sat there, but I closed my eyes. I'm super visual, so I had to, like, mm-hmm. go back to that space and, like, remember the table and remember the space and remember his face and what I was playing with and what I was touching and, like... And then I could access the words. I couldn't get there just kind of like going through normal cadences and conversation. Like, it wasn't important. It didn't like context. It didn't rock with me through the whole thing. Yeah. So do you deliberately, deliberately exercise your memory? 
Was it just a result of uh, all this? I used to deliberately exercise it, so I was waitressing for a long time, and I used to see how many people or how big of a table I could do without a writing pad. Um, I got to a table at 12 with full customizations and drink orders before I broke. I just remember it. It's super but that's like though. that's in the field. Did you ever do anything at home, like hmm. a game or an exercise that's like? No. Have you heard of the book Moonwalking with Einstein? Nope. It's. Tell me about how smart you are, Will. I'm not that smart. <laughs> First off, I'm not that smart. <laughs> but uh, the book Moonwalking Sorry, with Einstein. The, moon, the book Moonwalking with Einstein is about memory, and it's about how you. Um, you create experiences with memories mm. and you create visuals with memories yeah. and how these guys would remember decks of cards mm-hmm. memorize the number pi to like 800 billion numbers. Whew, I only know nine. And they would literally go to, well the average person I think only knows seven so you're already above average. But, um, <laughs> no really and they tell create, me more. They literally walk into a they, they create this house mm-hmm. and they walk into a house mm-hmm. and like each card or each whatever it might be they're trying to remember is mm-hmm. a specific room mm-hmm. and then a specific experience. Mm-hmm. So it creates these visualizations, which is a lot easier to recall from a memory. Is that like kind of how the movie Inception was figured out? I'm not sure, but it may... Have you seen the movie? Yeah, it's a yeah. Good movie. It's an interesting movie. I mean, they're totally happy. We can keep going. We were really digging into... I mean, I was... I flipped the tables on you for a minute. Sorry. Oh, no, I like it. It was good. It's, it's really good. Um, did we talk about the Einstein thing um, at one point? Because earlier you were talking about your lack of, or not your lack of sleep. Was it your mom's? Someone who didn't sleep much making fun of you for being up late as a creative? Oh, yeah. So she just goes to bed at 7.30 and wakes up at 3. Okay. On purpose. And you, oh, you had talked about how some creatives will stay up for 36 yeah. hours. But I'll there's do, a, yeah. I think there's an Einstein thing. Um, so it's a Galilean sleep cycle. They'd be up for 36 hours, sleep for four, up for 36, sleep for four, mm. up for 36, sleep for four. It's like a cycle. Mm. Like you, you you have this up regular... for 36, sleep for four, up for 36. Yeah. Sleep. You sound, you say it's, yeah, like it's so normal. Yeah. Get on my level. Yeah, no, I was referencing something else. To make sure I, oh. I was, I heard right. You know, there's, there's some kind of like Seems old insane. dead white guy that did this thing where he stayed up for a weird amount of time, slept for a small cadence, stayed up for a weird amount of time, slept for a small, but he did that all the time regardless of how it sorted out. And it was just more like a product of necessity than desire. So I was thinking of this thing where when he would get stuck with an idea, like some form of creator's block, for lack of a better term, um, I think he somehow learned that if you can access your subconscious, it can accelerate the evolution of an idea. And so if he'd be working on something and couldn't get past some hurdle to like advance the idea, he would sit there with a huge metal plate on the ground with like some like metal balls in his hand Mm -hmm. and fall asleep while like try to trick himself to fall asleep while thinking about this idea Mm. and then he would drop the ball that would wake him back up and it would often kind of take away this barrier to go oh i got it i can go on because he'd like doze off for a second oh interesting because they say sleeping on sleep on a problem or sleep on it yeah It yeah it's pretty much that but he would do it instantly and when he'd fall asleep he would drop the thing and wake him up and he'd often have some sort of way to advance the idea that he was stuck with with his awake mind. 
So I feel like that's something that we started to broach like maybe 45 minutes ago in the conversation about just like um, absolving the necessity to be right. Mm-hmm. And so when you just totally give up all anxiety about the ability to be wrong, and then when you just say, I'm willing to be wrong, but you have no idea of the depths in which you're willing to be wrong, then you just give it up. It's kind of the same idea. Like when you're sleeping, like anything's possible. Mm-hmm. When you're sleeping, you can fly. When you're sleeping, you can float. When you're sleeping, you can walk through walls. So you're just kind of removing all of the constraints that are construct, like all of the constraints that are imposed upon you in kind of this physical world, in this assumed world. And as soon as you depart from anything that is beholding you to whatever that structure is, and you just access the problem rather than figuring out in a solution-based thinking method, you're then you're constrained. Right. It's like there's that's not that all doors are open. Mm-hmm. There are no doors. There's no house. There's nothing. There's no walls. You're in the matrix. Anything's possible. Right. Have you taken the red pill or the blue pill? Gold. Um, no, but it's one of the... It, I totally agree. Like, it, it's just all of the, like, various mnemonics that allow people to access their inner subconscious, right? So, like, for me, as a creative, I went through art school for several years, and they had this pro- process of, like, what they called, like design thinking or intergalactic thinking or reverse thinking or whatever, you know, bullshit verb you want to use to associate with thinking. But it was just like shed every preconception that you had about what's right and access just the possibilities rather than the actualities. Mm -hmm. And so just go through all of those things. Think of what ifs. You know, I like to say, I like to swing the what if bat at anything and see where it lands. So you see, and I said this to you in our kind of message ahead of time but like you've always been someone to me that like thinks big and thinks bigger than a lot of other people yeah like do you think that art helps you think that way or is that just ingrained in you so art is an interesting construct that allows people to feel comfortable with impossibilities kind of what it's there for Right. Yeah. It, it it gives people a structure to feel comfortable with unstructured. That's good. You just look like you're really chewing on this for a minute, oh, so yeah. I just wanted to give you no, space to good. go through it. Oh, yeah, that's good. Like, I, I don't know. I was talking about this yesterday in class. Like, all art is subjective, yep. which is no. All art is also prescriptive. Because the artist has this path that they want to bring you through. And regardless of how badly or how deeply or how vehemently they want to take you through this narrative that they've defined, they can't be there and explain their inspiration to you at all times. You know, like, you have to take your biases you have to take your experiences you have to take your perceptions your interpretations your reality your language whatever and you have to then apply it to this and then it's never the same way twice and because you you know a man is like a mountain no matter how many times you see it it is never the same twice you know you can Mm -hmm. feel the same thing you can call yourself the same thing But in every moment, in every experience, in every instance, in every view, you have changed. You have eroded. You have built up. You have shifted. You have frozen. You have melted. You have whatever. 
And I think people and mountains and ideas kind of all work in the same way. You're never the same way twice. You think you perceive an idea one way. You go forward, you come back to that idea, and you smell it to be familiar. You acknowledge it to be familiar. It looks, on its first glance, to be something you've approached before. But as you get closer to it, you realize that the surface is different. It's shinier. It's jagged. It's actually sprouted flowers. It's different. And you have to navigate each of those things. You've had experiences. You've had hurts. You've had love. You've had wonder. You've had pain. You've had success. And every time you go back to a problem that you've experienced as your past self and you feel that you've understood how to accomplish that feat, you've never approached it the same way because you come in with a different perception. You've come in with a different premonition. You come into it with a different color or candor. You come to it more prepared. You come to it less prepared. You might win the same way, but as you go through these quests, these tasks, these accomplishments, you find value in different ways. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Amy? His middle on that. No, just Your new nickname is Rigatoni because you need a noodle. Yeah. Andy, Andy Pudicum, <laughs> the god. So Everett and I, are, are, we like to meditate. I love to meditate. And one of the things that Andy Pudicum, mm. the the master. Mm. Uh, He's the founder of the company. Founder of the company. The voice of the and the voice of Headspace. The app. Head Headspace. So what's your, what's your podcast called again? Life Lab Podcast. Okay. No, yeah. now, now you do. Because you're, you're going to go listen to yourself. Yeah. Are no, you, I you gonna... hate that. I, ref- I straight up refuse to listen to anything I've been recorded uh, in. Okay. Because I feel like I sound like a babbling robot. Well, we should definitely send her some snippets. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Definitely the fall into the bush. That's, that's that's That might be the opening line. Wait, here's a good sound clip. So I pounded a bush. I think that's what it was. I pounded a bush. I smashed that I bush. smashed that bush. Yeah, there you go. You ready? Yep, that. And, right the, and the story about Neil. Oh man, I'm gonna send it to Neil because, like, Neil. Okay, T O P T O T O. Pause, reverb, rewind. Neil thinks I was like shitting on him today because I kind of had a little bit more toot in my face than it was in my heart. Mm-hmm. But like, Neil, real talk, heart to heart, heart to Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate what you what, what he's done. He reached, when I sit on what he says for a minute, it means more to me than what he said in the moment. I just need a minute. And a minute and a moment are not interchangeable. And you just got to remember that sometimes. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's good. Okay. So, Neil Pudicum. Or not, Andy Andy Pudicum. I don't think we reflect enough, though. Mm -mm. To to your point, we don't look back at a moment and go like, is there more? From that moment that I could gain. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point, and I, Might tell you I find myself, I find myself wanting to reflect more, but finding it difficult to make the time for it, and that's obviously a choice. Mm-hmm. But I think it's so valuable that I almost need to start scheduling into my calendar. So, Will Dorns, I have given you a piece of advice in the past. Mm-hmm. about reflecting on things that you've done. Yeah. So let's talk about that. 
<laughs> you know what I'm talking about? I know exactly Would what I'm you like about. to tell those playing at home what yeah. we're talking about? So, <laughs> Maria, whenever I would see her, she'd be like, and so I was unemployed for a while. Um, and then I became employed. But even when I wasn't on, on Got it. Even when I was on employed, we would see each other. It'd be like, hey, like, what have you done recently that you can add and like tell your story from whether that be career, personal, any sort of thing that you can sell yourself with essentially. So it could be a project that you've done. It could be a growth thing that you've done personally, any sort of thing that you can essentially sell yourself. It was more career focused of like, where are the accomplishments that you've had in your career in the last like 28 days, last month, mm-hmm. write those down, keep a, keep a book of those. And then as then when you go back and you're trying to look for promotions or you're trying to sell yourself to a new employer or trying to get a new job, you can bring these up readily available because otherwise you're in a role for like three years Mm -hmm. and you look back at what did I do? And you're like, well, I did this general stuff. Mm -hmm. What did I, what were the deliverables that I delivered that provided a lot of value? Mm -hmm. I want you to know that I, I actually walk the walk. I didn't, I never doubted you. No, but some people like, are like, do you really do that? Like I have my promotion self tracker. So I have it divided into several things. I have situation or task, action, result, and solicited peer comments. So every time I do something that I feel like is a win, I reach out to people that were involved in it. So I narrate what was the situation or task? What was the action that I specifically took? And I have to be very careful about that narrative because I write it around what did I contribute? It has to make sense with my name in it. So like if I changed it with somebody else's name on my team, it might not make sense. Yeah. I have to write down the result. So like actual measurable, grokkable, tangible, excuse me, tangible details. And then I get solicited peer comments about other people's perspective of how, how I you, showed up to that. How do you go about doing that? And what's the message that you tell to them? And and from their perspective, why would they... They have nothing to lose. Why would they spend the time to do it? Also, they should all be doing it too. They should. And I've actually evangelized my entire team plus a couple of my peers to do it as well. So I actually have uh, just... Uh, a thing that I write all the time and it's the same exact thing. Uh, I found myself in that job interview years ago where they were like, so describe some projects and read up. And I was like, oh, I should be writing this down. <laughs> okay, <laughs> like, so... Perfect. Uh, That's funny. So this, the email that I write is all the same. It says... Hi, blank. So I'm putting together a working doc of feedback that I may use when I propose my promotion, and I want to use points over the last blank that I feel has been a good example of my abilities and skills that support or justify my performance level. I was hoping that you could take a few moments and briefly respond to your perception of my contributions to blank. Bullet points are totally fine. If you'd prefer not to send it to me directly, I ask that you send it to my manager and CCHR. If you don't mind sending it to me, I'm going to keep a running doc to present to my manager in the next promotion cycle. Thanks, and I hope you're willing to help with this. I copy-pasted the same thing. It's the same subject title, so when I search my inbox, if it says feedback PLZ, it's all of my running feedback for all of the projects that I've been working on. Where, when did you first start that? Peter. Peter taught me about that. Promotion tracking doc. Uh, 
Yeah. It's an Amazon thing. Yeah. I was going to say a lot of that stuff sounded familiar just from my almost 10 months now or to, uh, almost 10 months in, in Amazon. It sounds a lot more familiar. <laughs> Also, got to give a shout out to Andy Pudicombe. He always talks about impermanence. Oh, you're going to Revelstoke? Oh, it's a mountain in Canada. So you guys are you guys are hella skiing in Revelstoke. My dad has done like hella skiing there like three or four times. Yeah. He's like, it's the best yeah. ever. Yeah, I've I'm, never done it, but he's like, it's excited. amazing. We're, We're finishing up a podcast. podcast. Oh, sorry. No, you're fine. Hey, Peter. We're close to getting done, so then it'll be Party Central USA. We've been so close to finishing like five times. <laughs> That's what she said. Yay! Uh, That's staying in. <laughs> It's awesome. We'll all right, well, we're, we're wrapping. Okay. All right. Shut your shit. <laughs> I love you. You're perfect. Sorry. <laughs> we were just talking about uh, this is actually yeah, perfect timing. Actually, come here. You she, sit down. You're really yeah. good at talking about this. Oh. We were just talking about the promotional... Self-tracking promotion doc that you've inspired me to do and proliferate to my team. Literally, she said that like one like one sentence and then you rang the doorbell. I didn't ring the doorbell. No, Lauren rang the doorbell and Peter oh. came in right after that. Okay. It'd be weird for Peter to ring the doorbell. Right? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I was like, this is the only point. person. <laughs> Very so, good point. This is my house. Yeah. Do you need more wine? Or glass? Yeah, good to see you, Will. Yeah. So, Peter, the other guy that you don't I know I see you guys right? have been having fun. Wait, Danny, you need one more. I still appear right now. Oh, good work. I arrived just at the right time. Yeah, you need a glass of Yeah. Wait, are you still good on mine? I think so. I'll come down if we need Okay. Them. Wait. Am I going upstairs too? Yeah. Here. This is for you. Okay. In case you need it. It's just for you. Yes. Oh, did you see? There's a burning outside. I know. And it looks just like our burning. It's like better. Uh, can we focus here, people? No. <laughs> we have to focus on burning. You need that cup. Bring a cup. What cup? No, Peter does. No, Peter's sitting here for a second, and then he's coming upstairs. Oh, okay. So we were just talking about... (laughs) Um, So you taught me the idea and the value of a self-tracker for promotions. Yes. And, like, tracking your wins as you do them, so you don't have to try to recall what you've done. Cheers. Oh, yes. Cheers. Cheers. And so I've taken that piece of feedback, and I've proliferated it to my peers and my team. Okay. I have forced it upon Will. Take a seat. Yeah. Have you done it yourself? Just real quick. Yeah, sit down. So I've actually forced it upon Will as he was pre-Amazon. Oh, yeah. And and now Amazon. Now you yeah. know it's just part of your life. Yeah. He's done his first Forte cycle. Oh, yeah. Forte. Yeah. Okay. We love Forte. <laughs> <laughs> as a manager, I adore Forte. Oh, well, you've done your job of evangelizing. 60 words and done. Yeah. <laughs> So we were just talking about that because I've taken that construct and I'm like, document your wins 
talk about why they're important, solicit peer feedback or at least ad- adjacent feedback and like track it over time. So you don't have to go back and try to recall your minutia detail as you're either presenting yourself to new employers, talking about your wins when it comes to promotion time. And that was something that I really was like super passionate about with you because you just do such good shit all the time that sometimes you lose perspective of how good that shit is. Yeah. And how regularly, because you and I are very similar in how we perceive function. Like everything we do is exactly net zero. Everything we do is exactly correct in its status quo. But that's our perspectives because we believe we are doing exactly what we need to do when we need to be doing them. But in the perspective of those around us, we're kind of like above average in a lot of ways. We do things we hold ourselves to higher accountability levels. We kind of hold ourselves to like bigger standards. You were talking about earlier, Everett. You were like, I hold myself to high standards and those around me. Did I say that? You were talking about your like job and like learning new Probably, stuff. Yeah. yeah, you're like, I hold myself to high standards so oh, that yeah, I will go. Me, yeah. So. Shout out to my guy. Hashtag Will Dorrance. Hashtag <laughs> Diesel. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> but like you taught me that. You, Peter, taught me that. I pushed it through to Will. And now Will's come full circle and drank Kool-Aid. Nice. you got to give a quick introduction on yourself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Who are you? What do you do? Oh. Just real quick. Okay. So, yeah. I'm uh, I'm Peter. I'm an engineering leader at Amazon. Um, I like to to call it a leader because it's different from being a manager. So, so a leader says, we should do this and you should all follow it. And I think it's important for a leader to stand up and say, we should, you should follow. And, um, and it's not in terms of, I'm making you do this. It's like, I think this is a worthwhile initiative. And I think it's worthwhile enough that you should follow and help do it. So semantically should and will are different things. Like you, you should follow this as opposed to you will follow this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's no point, like, bringing the hammer and saying, like, you will do this. <laughs> yeah. Like, it doesn't win you <laughs> anything. You know what rules an iron fist? No, no, no. I, I rule with a sharp question. <laughs> oh, that's good. Right? And I'll say, like, why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. And I'll say, like, you know, what about this use case? You know, that the customer is going to be important to the customer. Mm-hmm. I do want to get back to the 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 doc, but I mm. do want to ask how do you, how long do you let them go before you say why are you doing this? Ooh, I struggle with this one. <laughs> yeah, right. Because are you going to question the manager about how they're doing, or are you going to question the engineer? Right, because I've been managing engineers for quite a long time, and I find it much easier to decide when to question the engineer. But I find it harder to question the manager because right? I'm transitioning right now mm-hmm. to the manager of managers role, and and I've been in that transition for more than two years now, and I haven't always succeeded because I I don't know when to ask the tough questions of the manager. And I think I'm getting better at it now, and I'm starting to see some success there. Do you have a a lesson? or a best practice that you've learned over the last few years? Let them fail. That's totally great. Same same, uh, principles. It's it's, so true. Because I was just talking about how, like, Neil let me fail and I have to let myself fail a little bit. 
Hashtag Neil. <laughs> Letting yourself fail is a tough one. That's 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 very interesting. Mm-hmm. Because I try to see it, I try to preempt my failures and take action to limit the consequences. And I just go full face you into go fucking full up. Face in. <laughs> yeah. Yep. yep. <laughs> Yeah, there's no stopping full you. Full frontal fail. Yeah. <laughs> full no frontal. stopping you when you're heading for a fail. <laughs> but have you seen me fail the same way twice? Uh, I'd probably say no. Yeah. Yeah. Let's think about that one a bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I can bring up something. Yeah. I really yeah. reach deep. I mean, truly, like, like there might be some like similar themes, but I've never actually, I've never failed the same way twice. Hmm. I've maybe failed similarly around delicacies. How you define a failure, though? That's <laughs> that's, that's, that's quite interesting. So it's a very good point. We'll yeah, success and failure. Very yeah, up to but how you find them. Let's round out your thing about the promo doc because we started pushing on that for a second. Yeah, how did tracking. You, was that something that you learned at Amazon or something you learned somewhere else, or is that something you developed on your own? Um, I think it was a couple of my mentors suggested it over the years, and Siobhan? and it was around. Around Christmas time, when when I realized like I should write a quick summary of the highlights of the year, so I have a document for every year where it's like highlights of the year two thousand seven, you know, and um, and it's just nice to just write just each of the points that were highlights of the year, because you forget these things, you know, and you forget what you achieved, and it's it's not about telling the world that you've succeeded. Right, this is for you. Yeah. And this is in your space and you don't need to share it with other people. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's more powerful I think if you don't actually share it. But it's nice to be reminded of the successes as you go forward. And um, and and you remember the stories of when it was hard and when you had to work hard to, to get a success. You know, and they're they're the most impactful ones and they're the ones where you learn the most. So. And I really like the sentiment of it and taking it another level deeper is like kind of writing that narration when it happens because there's like certain specific situational details that might be lost to the annals of time, right? Like as you go through things, as the months progress, you're like going to lose the color and lose the radical unsolicited oh, candor. Oh, <laughs> what yes. was the thing you wrote down about candor radical again? Radical candor was one. Um, no, no, there was another one. It was like radical Something in passion and misguided candor. That's it. Ooh, yeah, yeah great band. I recognize that across the table. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say those four words describe me? What radical passion and misguided candor? That and clean holes. <laughs> <laughs> With an H, not a W. <laughs> But, like, I found the value in that, and I started making it, like, super situational. Like, when you do it, write it the fuck down. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's, like, certain things and certain special and, like, gems that are, that will get lost, you know, as weeks and the months and the quarters progress. Mm. Like, you're going to remember the macro narrative six months after your win. But you might not remember like that one specific detail, you know, that number, that metric, that ROI, that thing. So I'm gonna I'm gonna counter that. Oh yeah? Yeah. Bring it. I'm gonna counter it because if you don't remember it, it wasn't important. But something else could take the space that you might perceive as more important. Yeah. 
It's just limited space. That's true. Yeah. Hmm. So, you know me. Like, numbers don't always stick with me. Mm-hmm. But the narrative sticks with me. That's true. And I need something to help the numbers stick. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yep. So, this is what we do. It's <laughs> great, though. I think we should end on that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We should end great. it on this. So, I, I have one story about Ooh. recognizing okay. the successes. Ooh. Yeah, please. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a success. So that's a great success in my life. <laughs> great success. Great success. So, so I once visited uh, Seth Godin's office in about an hour out of New York, north of New York. And I walked in, and and he has framed around the office all the magazine covers that he's been on. Now he's been a columnist in Fast Company since the beginning, and. Um, and at, f- at first, I thought, this is kind of vain. I'm like, why are you doing this? You know, why do you have your magazine covers all around the office? And, and then I realized, like, this is his space. Mm-hmm. Now, this is not anyone else's space. This is space for him and his, like, three or four staff. And, and this is not about vanity. And it's not about impressing other people. And this is very much about remembering your successes and celebrating your successes. And and I realized, like, it's good to celebrate your successes and you should keep them front of mind because, you know, that's the result of the really good work that you did. And, you know, if that can't be celebrated, like, when should you be celebrating? When did you come to that realization? Did you realize that in the moment? Did you realize that later? I think on the train back from from the office. Yeah. Because you know, it's about an hour train ride out of New York City. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a bit out of, out of the way. Yeah. It's the whole um, idea of the minute versus the moment. Yeah. yeah, and I, yeah. I, I've had a lot of amazing thoughts in that train ride. Yeah, actually. I bet. Because <laughs> I've done it a few times now, but yeah. yeah. It's kind of like when you evaluate anything. Like, you can, you can go up and down about how something disturbed you or something pissed you off. Yeah. But if you think about it for a minute... And you just really dive into what was shitty. How something pissed you off, right? Yeah. Or how something was shitty. Isn't that why the dip happens? But what do you do to get out of your dip? What do you do to get out of your dip? You might have to go back to the beginning and think about what got you through that hump to begin with and Mm. how you decided to... Okay, so you think about why you're doing it. Yeah, okay. Right, your moment of commitment. Okay. What brought you your moment of commitment? Okay. What got you to commit? Okay. Where are your emotions that committed you to committing? Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, what yep. what, what, relied, what relied your allegiance? Okay. And then how did you fail? How did you commit to failure? How willing... It's not a failure to go well, through the dip, though. no. Right? How the willing... It's just like, it's hard right now. But what made you marry yourself to saying, I'm okay with this? Okay with what? Pushing yourself through the deep dive, but knowing on the other side... That you'll keep going. Yeah, yeah. But what tools can you do? Can you use to keep you going when you're going through the dip? Remember why you committed in the beginning. What if that's not enough? But why was that not enough to begin with? Because you got the rush of success at the beginning. But there had to be something that gave you that belief that you could come out of it. Yeah. But you're not in something at the beginning. Right. 
but you have the aspiration that you will be on the other side. Do you? Most of the time. What is the object, though? Well, you have your, your ideal, and you have to understand that your ideal is not your reality, but you still have to push forward through it. But ideal is a very absolute thing. Subjective. Mm-hmm. So my ideal is So like, the ideal changes as you grow bigger and stronger. And how comfortable are you with it? Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, mm-hmm. what do you do when it's just not working for you? You remember where you were when you started the commitment to pushing through. Mm-hmm. Is there some like blind understanding of like the inevitability that you just, you're going to have to get through something? Sometimes maybe there's mm-hmm. not something you grab onto other than the reality that you've got to go forward. Interesting point. Yeah, close. close. You either have to accept that you're going to keep going down or have the aspiration that this is down and the only way you have to go is out. So is it down and you're not going to be able to go and recover? And well, you can either get to the bottom of your dip and hit eject. Yeah, the cul-de-sac. Right. When you're done and you just hit the I quit button, there's three yeah. outcomes of the dip. There's the I quit, there's the I do nothing and it resolves itself, or the I'm going to dig in and I'm going to literally climb my way using my teeth if I have to. Climb the wreckage. Climb the wreckage and build a plate. So yeah, I actually use this. I use this. I use this. I use this example earlier, and I was like, yeah. sometimes you have to commit to something, and knowing that you're just going to wreck that plane, and you just have to commit to wrecking that plane. But when you crash, and as you climb out of the plane, you take the pieces with you that you need to to build a new plane, and just keep going on the up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what pieces you have to commit that you're you know you're going to take the pieces with you to build your new plane. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a very good analogy. Because I like to ask, why do you want to build the new plane? Because you're. Why you're, do you want to fly out of that place? Because I refuse to fail. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, out of all that that you were talking about when you were in the dip, is I think a lot of it comes back to your intrinsic values that you hold to yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very good. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So, to me, the ultimate way to get out of the dip is when you recognize you're in there, mm. things are not working, you're not getting the result that you wanted, mm. um, you keep pushing, it doesn't work, mm. and you ask yourself, how can I be more generous? Mm. Mm-hmm. How can I be more generous to those around me? And generous doesn't have to be giving, it can just no. be allowing. Yes. Because yeah. that whole conversation we had about Neil, like I allowed myself to understand where he was coming from. And I allowed myself to hear his narrative deeper than he might have said it. You gave yourself permission. Yeah. I gave myself permission to hear bigger, for mm-hmm. sure. But you also give yourself permission to say, maybe he's right. Oh, there was no maybe. He was actually right. I just had to give my permission to accept it. But you can look at it and say, like, how can I be more generous to this person or Mm -hmm. to these other people around me? It's really interesting you say that because I heard that this might have been Tim Ferriss that said this. It was, it was, (laughs) if you're ever having a bad day, Tools of Titans, I saw saw that. Uh, Whenever, if you're having a bad day, yeah, I I have it too. Uh, If you're ever having a bad day Mm -hmm. and you just can't get out of a funk, Maybe it's one day, multiple days. Mm. 
do a random act of kindness by someone behind you, yep. a cup of coffee, mm-hmm. yep. something like that, that like yep. gets you start your your ball. Ever and I talk about momentum a lot. Oh, yeah. That gets your ball of momentum started well, in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I issue you guys a challenge. What happens if you do three random acts of kindness every day? It doesn't have to be anything crazy. It just if it's be like... just saying thank you for a job well done. Mm-hmm. Okay, and look for the good in the day. Or it doesn't even have to be a job well done. It could be something rather innocuous like, well, you're a good friend. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. That's all. Just random ass text. Yeah. yeah. That's it. I mean, you're a good friend. I too. think that's the challenge for the whole podcast. Yeah, I think that's yeah. a challenge. Everybody out there. Yeah. Everyone out there. Yeah. Bring it. Yeah. Let's go. This is why I keep him around. Thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks that for joining. That was an amazing <laughs> like, thanks, 15 minutes. <laughs> I mean, this has gone from fuck you to fuck that. To... <laughs> well, I wouldn't have said it quite a lot. No, no, it did. <laughs> uh, I guess, yeah, we want to thank the listeners. Thank you for uh, this whining conversation. It's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you for your time. Thank you, Maria. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. Peter. Thanks, Diesel. Thanks, guys. Really you still get it. to find me in the It'll come. No, it won't. No, it won't. Alright, sign out. I don't know. This Life Lab, we out. out. That's it. <laughs> hashtag podcast. Hashtag TBT. I'm not even going to lie. There were so many good moments in that.